As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. I'm Tim White. We hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. As my dad and I are still digesting our festive feasts, today's episode will continue the conversation between John and Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal, which we began last week. It was hosted by Premier Unbelievable's Justin Briley. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to The Big Conversation. I'm joined today by John Wyatt and Lord Martin Rees. We're talking about robots, transhumanism and life beyond Earth. As ever, there are links to both my guests from today's show. Um, We're going to continue talking about sort of the interesting dilemmas and challenges that uh, the the advent of robotics and advanced robotics plays in the world today. Uh, Here's another clip that I'll share uh, from two robotics experts. Again, this is Nigel Crook and David Levy. Uh, This time talking about the way that uh, robots are increasingly providing care, even developing sometimes romantic relationships, whether that's a possibility in the future. Let's hear what they have to say. We're already seeing, I think, in places like Japan, um, robotics starting to be integrated into healthcare and care for the elderly in particular. Um, And you can see the advantages of that uh, in terms of uh, saving on human resources and the ability for robotic companions and things to be there day and night and Mm. uh, in all kinds of circumstances. At the same time, what what are your feelings about effectively replacing human care Mm. with machine care? I don't think we should ever do it. Um, I think that technology uh, uh, like robotics and AI should be used to augment human care, uh, if possible. Uh, The issue in Japan and the issue will be in this country um, within the next 50 years is there won't be enough people to maintain the same level of care. Uh, that we currently have. We have an uh, aging population. We have an aging population so that there won't be enough younger people to to fulfill that role. And so for me, the question is, how can this technology be used to augment the care that humans give rather than replace it? And why, why is that important for you that we don't simply replace human care with machine care? Because again, these are vulnerable people and human to human interaction is always going to be far better to me than machine to human interaction. I suppose my next natural question, though, is if if you could create the kind of robot that for all intents and purposes looks, Mm. acts and feels like a human, um, would you be effectively giving that person, you know, human to human care? That is a really good question. And I'm not sure about the answer to that. Um, It's possible that we could reach that level of realism within a very specific scenario. Um, 
but I, uh, the 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 problem for me is that that robot would have to experience so much of life to be able to truly empathize um, with that individual that 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 makes it beyond reach as far as I'm concerned at the moment. Um, what you could do is you could have a, a monitoring system or simple interaction with an elderly person which keeps them engaged, perhaps helps them to remember their past, shows them photographs mm. of their past and, and enables them to sort of uh, keep that sort of memory alive. But, but you would also need that human-human interaction as well, I think. When it comes to advances in robots that are used for sex, for um, re relationships, for perhaps companionship uh, and other things, generally are you, are you quite positive about movements in that direction? I'm very positive. And the reason I'm so positive is I see robots as being the answer to the prayers of all those millions of people all over the world who are lonely because they have no one to love and no one who loves them. And for these people, uh, they might have psychological problems, they might have psychosexual problems, social problems, they might not be appealing to the um, people they would like to be appealing to, all sorts of reasons. Um, they have a huge void in their lives, and this void will be filled when there are very human-like robots around with whom they can form emotional attachments, have sexual relationships, and even marry them. Is that not an indictment, though, of humans that we've that we are not fulfilling, that we are, there are so many people who are lonely. Uh, is, it, is it not something of an abnegation of our duty to be caring for each other rather than simply saying, well, let the robots do it? I, I don't think it's realistic to believe that we could possibly be sufficiently caring for each other to um, take care of the huge number of people who suffer from such problems. Um, I think that robots are really the only answer. Uh, a lot of people ask the question, uh, why is it better to be in love with or have sex with a robot than with a human? Uh, to my mind, that's the wrong question. I think the real question is, is it better to have love and sex with robots or no love and sex at all? Is there a danger that we, we change the way we think about sexuality and romance if, if essentially you're doing something to a subject rather than it being something that, that can equally um, have its own range of emotions and will and, and psychology and so on? To some extent. I mean, there are people who argue that um, sex robots objectify women because most sex robots in the first instance are going to be female in form. I disagree. I don't think they objectify women. I think what sex robots do is to humanize robots. Um, so I don't see a problem there at all. Lots to uh, lots to respond to in that uh, those two very different views on the role of robots in in caring and even romantic relationships. Martin, you look like you want to respond immediately. Go ahead. Well, uh, well, there's an inconsistency, isn't there? In that, um, uh, if if you think that these robots are going to be realistic enough and human-like enough to be uh, emotional partners, as it were, uh, then. Shouldn't one consider their feelings and say, do they want to uh, be linked with this uh, um, repulsive person? You've got to ask that question. And so I think there's an inconsistency in the in, in the aim of what's being said that uh, if they are um, sufficiently like a human to uh, 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 be a substitute, uh, then we have to think about their feelings. Yes, absolutely. Well, robot rights and so on. I mean, John, what? I suppose these are the dilemmas that are thrown up. Yeah, yeah. By, by by all of this, isn't it, John? What's what's your feeling on those? Yes. I don't think we're going to get there, no. but, uh, but, but those who take this view seriously are going to have to worry about this for consistency. Yeah. John, go ahead. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think this, 
I think this is a fascinating um, point about uh, we all understand the difference between rape and consensual sex and uh, and yet the question is exactly that if you have a sex robot who is to all intents and purposes uh, behaving like a human being then do you have to ask consent do you have to take their feelings into into account and they, and and if you're so repulsive that no human being wants to have intimate relations with you then maybe you know I, there is yeah. a very serious element to all this i mean we're, we're partly making it humorous but there's a very serious mm-hmm. element to this and it is this confusion uh, what i see happening is is that previously until this point we all pretty well agreed that there was a kind of fairly clear barrier between where we were having relationships with other human beings and where we were having quotes relationships with beings that were non-humanoid you know and yes it's true that the little girl uh, has her teddy bear or her doll and talks to it and so on but actually the little girl knows perfectly well that this is not a real baby and that when the little girl actually meets a real baby she behaves in a completely different way from the way that she would behave uh, with a doll. So so we up until this point, we've always had psychologically and uh, relationally um, this, this understanding that there's a difference. And now what we're doing is we're creating this third entity, this blurred blurring, uh, where it's not really human, but it's almost human. And, mm. and then how do I respond to this? And I'm my greatest concern is with children who, you know, who grow up with this. If your earliest experience as as your earliest memories are talking to Alexa and playing with your robotic dog, you know, what does that do? Um, and, and Sherry Turkle, who's a very thoughtful commentator on all this, she, she has written, the problem will not be, do we, will we come to love our robots? The, the question will be, what will love mean? In other words, it's that redefinition of of relationships, and and in particular, a kind of transactional relationship. I mean, historically, and I think this is where uh, this is partly from a Christian perspective that we, um, Christians and others have always understood human relationships as as touching on something immensely profound. You know, they, at their highest level, this reaching out to another of giving to another and so on is something deep deeply profound and what's being replaced by is this kind of transactional understanding that that i press these buttons this thing smiles at me it makes me feel happy that's a relationship hmm. do, do you share those concerns as well martin yes i couldn't have expressed them so well but i completely agree with with that uh, reaction to this uh, scenario completely agree i mean given that robots you know perhaps we're not at the stage where people are really attaching full-on romantic relationships with with robots but we are seeing in places like japan you know an elderly population increasingly being serviced by autonomous robots of some kind you know and and they're being sort of at least companionship given by um you know uh algorithmic robots and so on what what again martin is is it just practically you know do we just take a pragmatic view and say well if there aren't enough people to go around that's you know that's the way we'll have to do it we'll have to employ the services of of robots that have a kind of quasi-human relationship with people or or do you think we should actively strive to to not go down that road martin 
Well, I think we should strive very hard not to. And of course, uh, um, it'll be easier to avoid that route if we're prepared to have massive redistribution of funds so as to publicly support large numbers of people uh, who will um, act as carers um, for the old and assistants to teachers uh, to look after the young, etc. So I think we should try very, very hard uh, to provide uh, uh, care for all who need it from real human beings. And this is in the interests of uh, both those who might otherwise be unemployed if they're not sort of digitally expert. They've got to have some employment where being human is important. And also, I think it's uh, more dignified for uh, an individual to be looked after by another human being. Well, why, why do you say it's more dignified? What, what is it about the human interaction that you can't replicate uh, the dignity of with a, with a robot? Well, you think that there's an entity that really cares about you. And uh, you're not uh, convinced that that is the case for any of these robots. Mm. So it's, it's in that sense, it's, it's feeling like you're interacting with someone who is like you and has the same sort of feelings and desires and yes, yes. Yeah, compassion mm -hmm. and so on. Jo mm -hmm. jo John, where does your kind of concern come from? Is it, is it a, a similar place to Martin? Well, I think it's very interesting, isn't it, that one of the fundamental drives we have as human beings, and, and from a Christian point of view, we would say this is part of our being creating God's image, is, is, our, is our desire and longing for truth. Uh, for authenticity, for meaning and significance. And therefore, uh, however clever the simulation and the simulacrum, it is ultimately still a simulacrum. I, I, I've been think, doing a thought experiment, trying to get my head around this. And I was thinking, suppose I've been happily married for nearly 40 years. Suppose it turns out that my wife is actually a Russian agent in deep uh, cover and that uh, unknown to me she has her own handler and she's been playing this part um, for 40 years suppose I go to my grave and I never know that she actually was a double agent does it matter because I thought I had a happy marriage I enjoyed the marriage um, and actually I think most of us would say yes it does matter because uh, we were living a lie and 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 it matters truth authenticity matters and that's why i think that gets at the heart of what what martin said about the dignity of being cared for you know you think of this elderly person perhaps slightly confused um who thinks that this program is is genuinely cares about her and and is 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 there for her and is compassionate and actually it's all clever programming and, and intuitively we recoil and we say there's something wrong about that. There's something inauthentic. Could I just say something else about this question of, I often hear this uh, narrative and that is there are just not enough people to do the caring. And, and like Martin, I would totally want to push back against that because of course it is true that there is a, an acute shortage of carers in our community and across many Western countries. But the reason for that is that their, uh, their terms and conditions, their pay, the way their status, the way they're treated is, is that they're regarded as absolutely the bottom of the rung. And, you know, there's no shortage of people wanting to do MBAs and wanting to become commercial lawyers and so on. And, and so the, the challenge we've got is to re imagine the caring the human caring role as as something 
to be um, regarded as as with you know as a high status dignified well-trained well-paid uh, job and I, you know I think there are more than enough human beings to take on that job if we can only present it in that way Martin go ahead I, I completely agree with that and of course um, those who are going to be displaced first by robotic advances are those in the mind-numbing jobs like call centres and uh, they need to be given some uh, more fulfilling role and among those roles would be carers. Yeah. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. I mean, turning from the issue of the, the, those the, the jobs and the roles and, and the ways in which, you know, potentially robotics may be a help, but may also start to change the way we interact with each other and think about relationships and so on. I mean, there, there are also the ethical implications of, of the way in which we're handing over so many responsibilities to AI, to machines and so on. Um, you know, one of one of the, the most often talked about one is is self-driving cars, uh, which are becoming a reality now. We are seeing self-driving cars starting to pop up and, you know, the laws being put in place that would allow for that kind of a reality. But but then at the same time, you know, we hear about these thought experiments that that, uh, you know, what what kind of decisions will a self-driving car make when it is faced with either going off the road and, and hitting the lady with her pram or hitting, you know, someone else on the other side and so on. Um, the Someone's, I suppose, got to be programming the ethics, haven't they, of these of these robots and uh, and so on. Um, Martin, what's what's your thoughts on this? I mean, do, are you concerned by the fact that we are having to effectively create moral, you know, sort of impart some kind of moral view to, to our robots um, is that again just an inevitable part of, of the progress of technology? Do you, what, what are your thoughts on it? Well, we certainly have to do this. We confront what philosophers call a trolley problem uh, in uh, in deciding how a ro- robotic car uh, reacts in an emergency. Um, and I personally think actually it'll be a long time before we have the so-called stage five fully driverless cars where the pastor could sit in the back as though they got a chauffeur. I think that'll be a very long time coming. Um, But um, I think what we are facing immediately is uh, lots of decisions which affect us, which are being taken by AI. Um, And of course, AI has the advantage uh, that it can uh, uh, work through a huge volume of data very quickly. But I certainly think that if we are going to be um, uh, recommended for parole if we're in prison uh, or um, uh, given uh, uh, recommended for an operation or anything like that uh, then um, it's or even denied credit by a bank then we ought to be able to contest that decision it's not enough to say it's been done by a robot uh, which on the whole has a better record than a human of consistent judgment we want to be able to contest this uh, and um, of course, um, go, mm. going back to what Jim said, um, r- robots um, can be helpful. I mean, I know in, in the medical area, um, uh, in radiology, um, a uh, robot can have scanned 100,000 chest x-rays to look at signs of cancer and things like that, which is more than any human doctor could in a lifetime. And so, um, obviously, that's one example where um, the AI can help with 
diagnosis by a real doctor. And there are many cases like that. But I think to um, delegate any important um, uh, decision to a machine uh, when we can't question it and can't be sure there aren't some emergent bugs in the program is very dangerous. And we are heading that way already. Go ahead, John. Yes, I think this is a really important issue uh, which we're wrestling with in healthcare because it's absolutely right that um, advances in uh, deep learning technology are bringing all kinds of new possibilities, including interpretation of scans and pathology results um, and um, basic science insights and so on. And one of the interesting things that this kind of automation technology does is it, is it uh, decomposes traditional professional roles. So whereas previously we, th- we thought we knew what a doctor, a medical doctor did, what their role was, what their training was and so on. And what increasingly AI is doing is it's decomposing the different tasks that doctors do and um, increasingly many of the tasks that doctors have done in the past will now be better done by machines and then the question is well well what is it what's the value added what is it that the human being brings and 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 do we need to train a physician and, and spend a million dollars and and uh, and so on in, in in training a human being and i i think there is definitely a, 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 an important role and I think of it particularly that there is that part of what as a patient when you're facing catastrophe and a disaster um, you want somebody with humanity and wisdom and, and and the role of the physician it seems to me is to be a wise friend and that means using all the Uh, information provided by the technology but ultimately providing that human wisdom um, which which is what um, you so desperately need when you're in this very vulnerable position as a patient and I I think that it's going to be a, a challenge because who takes the responsibility and um you know who if the doctor makes a decision based because the AI has said the scan shows this, you know, and it then turns out the the, the programming was faulty. Who who carries liability? Who who carries responsibility? And interestingly, you the the problem with these deep learning systems is that you cannot question them. You can't interrogate them and say why did you come to this conclusion and not that conclusion. At least with a human being, you can say why did you think it was cancer. And, and they've actually got, you can push back. Does that concern you, Martin, the, the idea that we're kind of developing almost black boxes in their own light, these sort of, these self-learning machines? So I know that, for instance, you know, the, these these amazing computers that have, you know, learned Go in 24 hours and then beat the world grandmaster of, of Go and so on. Even the people building the machine don't really know how it did it. It just, you know, looked at the rules and started to, to, to do its algorithmic thing. So it's almost as though we are already creating machines that are kind of going off and doing their own thing in that sense. Well, I think there are certain kinds and uh, um, playing Go or chess is an example where through speed and playing against themselves thousands of times in an hour, uh, they can learn very fast. And that's similar with, uh, with uh, learning to interpret uh, um, x-rays of lungs and all that. They can do these things. Um, but I think it's important to bear in mind that um, there's a, 
rather complicated gap between what machines can do well and what they can't do well. We've uh, what's what Jim said about uh, medicine. That's one example. Um, but um, uh, it's certainly not the case that uh, white collar jobs are going to be harder to automate than blue collar jobs. I mean, I suspect uh, computer coding um, uh, can can be done by, by machines. A lot of uh, uh, routine legal conveyancing and things like that can be mechanized. But on the other hand, um, plumbing, I suspect, can't. You know, the, the, the plumber who comes and has to poke around in your, in your roof to find where there's a leak, one can't see a robot doing that in the near future. And um, in gardening, um, it's true that you can go from having a spade to having a bulldozer, but neither of those can design a nice garden. And so I think gardening is another uh, uh, so-called blue-collar job, which is going to be very hard to replace. So I think uh, there's going to be a sort of redistribution of uh, human labour, um, but it's going to be a, a, a rather complicated. And of course, in most cases, the uh, machine is going to be supplementary or enhancing the role of the human rather than usurping and, it. And I mean, do you do you have any fears? And this is, you know, the the stuff of sci-fi movies and books and so on. But but that humans might, at some point, as it were, become fed up with the number of robots taking their jobs, and perhaps they're not seeing the benefits, you know, that should accrue from from all these labour-saving devices. Rather, they're just feeling that uh, I'm I'm being left behind, and so on. Is there any danger of a sort of I don't know luddite kind of smashing of the robots kind of rebellion or, or anything like that? Well, I mean, uh, I wouldn't call it a danger necessarily because um, it may very well be that uh, we decide that. Um, we want to slow down the development of some kind of technology uh, because it's not it's not cost effective it's not beneficial um, that that has happened if you look at the history of technologies um, some have developed very very fast uh, smartphones for instance which have spread around the world far faster than anyone predicted uh, but on the other hand supersonic flight um, uh, we're still using the same kind of planes as we were over 50 years ago, the jumbo jet first flew in 1969, Concorde came and went, and that's an example where we could have had a rapid development of technology, but it was thought it wasn't commercially or socially acceptable. And so, in the same way, it may well be decided that um, um, we don't want to develop these technologies further. I think uh, in the smartphone, um, maybe that's saturated, maybe the um, iPhone 24 will be not too different from the iPhone 13, um, and, and that's an example. So technologies, they, they develop fast and then plateau, um, and, uh, and that's because of um, lack of mm. public demand or concerns, and that may very well happen to some of these uh, uh, uses of machine learning. I mean, John, I'd just, be welcome it. I'd, I'd just be interested, John, in your perspective, because another big sort of concern that's often raised is, is the idea of a singularity or at some point, you know, uh, the machines sort of take over and uh, sort of decide humans are dissensible. You know, we can get on better with the, the job we've got in front of us without humans. I mean, is, is that just, again, sci-fi or or do you do you think there's a genuine concern that, that we could be heading in that sort of direction, John? Well, I think the idea of a singularity, which is that at some point we suddenly create super intelligent machines and then they they get, you know, within a few minutes they become so ridiculously intelligent they then take over the world. You know, th this is just pure science fiction and is not a genuine uh, risk. I, I, think <clears throat> I think the risks of AI are much more to do with uh, malevolent human beings using 
AI for nefarious purposes and and you know the the power of the simulation and of deception is is absolutely enormous but going back to the what I do think I see happening and that is an increasing quotes virtualization of many people's experience I mean we've already spending <clears throat> so much time aren't we sitting on our backside staring at screens and um as the new generations of virtual reality and augmented reality become available, I think there are going to be increasing numbers of our society who start to think actually living in a digital world is preferable. You know, in, in the real world, I, I, I have got no money, I've got rampant inflation, we've got warfare, we've got, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hanging on by my fingertips, the oil price and so on. I go into my virtual world and all of a sudden, it's fantastic. I mean, I can do whatever I want to do. Mm-hmm. I can experience, I can pretend to play roles. And, you know, this this kind of dystopic view of the future where actually the virtual be- starts to become more and more attractive. I think that's mm. a real threat. Mm. Yeah. Do you, do you agree with that, Martin? Uh, I, it's, it's like being on, being on uh, drugs that uh, distort your perception of reality. And so... I agree it would be deplorable if that happened and we are heading that way. So I think one of the real questions then is what is it? Because because there are, I mean, although Martin and I tend to agree a lot, there are a lot of people out there who would take the contrary view and they would say this is the future. This is the way it's going. And uh, rather than be Luddites like like we are and say isn't it terrible you know we should embrace the future that the the future of humanity is in this virtual merging with the virtual i mean elon musk for instance well-known entrepreneur is saying the only hope for us as as human beings made out of meat is that we've got to find a way of connecting ourselves to the digital technology so that it doesn't take over so i mean how we respond to that i think is going to be really important in the future well indeed and of course uh, if we got too dependent then we would be vulnerable to breakdowns and of course uh, one one of the things that i worry about very much is um, as you already said malevolent use of these powerful technologies which enable just one person or a few people um to uh, uh, cause a massive cyber attack which shuts down the electric grid or something like that um, or more insidiously uh, just breakdowns which are so complicated to track down and repair that we become helpless so there's a big risk that as these things get more complicated uh, then uh, uh, we become far more vulnerable and that's another reason for not becoming uh, too dependent on on these these things and also that um, the other new thing is that um, they span the globe in many cases. So if something goes wrong, it's not localized in a way that most disasters were in the past. It could spread globally. And one of the themes in my book is indeed that uh, uh, what a new concern is that cascades globally can occur uh, from uh, um, bio or cyber errors or terrors well look we're going to go to a quick break and we'll be back to conclude today's discussion and and i'd like to talk about in the next segment sort of that 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 concept which i think left someone like i think it was max tegmark you know wept on the side of the street when he considered the idea that one day humans would be completely replaced by robots you know stretching far out into the galaxy who knows and we'll we'll talk about maybe what what that looks like in the future but we'll we'll come back to all that Uh, my guests today are 
are Martin Rees and John Wyatt. We're talking today about robots, about transhumanism, life beyond Earth and much more besides. We'll be back very shortly. Thanks for listening to this episode of Matters of Life and Death. Tune in next week for the final instalment of this big conversation between John and Martin Rees. As always, there's plenty more to read, listen to and watch if you're interested in going deeper on Dad's website. You can find it at www.johnwyatt.com. And to get in touch with us, with your thoughts or feedback, simply email molad, that's M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Happy New Year, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Unbelievable.